Support for An Honest Account comes from Moneybox, the award-winning app helping people save and invest for their future. Moneybox allows you to invest with your spare change, from your morning coffee to your bus fare, rounded up to the nearest pound. Moneybox offers a range of savings and investment accounts and makes it super easy to use. All you do is sign up in minutes and get started with just one pound. Join over 200,000 people saving and investing for their future with Moneybox. You can download the app today or head to moneyboxapp.com for more details. Please remember that with all investing, your capital is at risk. And thank you to Moneybox. Welcome to season two of An Honest Account, a podcast about how money affects our lives, our health, work, relationships, and more. I'm Rachel Revis, and today I'm speaking to Lucy Pasha Robinson, opinion editor at the Huffington Post. Lucy has had endometriosis for almost seven years, has seen multiple specialists, and spent, as she says, more money than she can bear thinking about on trying to find a cure. But currently, a cure does not exist, although at least 176 million women around the world suffer from the condition. Endometriosis is when a tissue similar to the lining of the womb attaches itself to other organs and can cause extreme pain. Lucy and I chatted about living with a chronic health condition and how it impacts your work and personal life. So Lucy, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Squeezing me in. And your lunch break and... I wanted to ask you a bit more about your, I hate the word journey. <laughs> what can we call it that's not journey? Um, the unexpected twist my life has taken. Path to enlightenment <laughs> or not. Um, but you have endometriosis and pelvic pain and that's something I discovered when I read an article you'd written about it and I think you vice versa with me. And they were like, huh, we both have this, let's chat. Um, which was great for me because I didn't really know many people that Definitely. had what I had. And those comparing those symptoms, I think, was just really, really helpful. It was a lifeline when I was at the Indy, like being able, when going through bad patches and being able to tell you all about it. Good. Yeah, we, I'm glad. We were a support for each other, weren't we? <laughs> yeah. And it's funny how when it started 10 years ago, like there was nothing out there. No, I didn't know anyone. Like I was just like, what is wrong? So that was great. But for the benefit of people who don't know, can you tell me a little bit about how this your endometriosis started and how long it took you to get a diagnosis as well yeah sure so um it was a long journey to diagnosis really um but also one that was masked by a lot of misconceptions I had around what was normal and what period should be like so I'd always had um difficult like menstrual cycles um heavy bleeding um like intermittent pelvic pain painful sex um and it was only in uh, 2014 when it started becoming really, really acute and I was ending up in A&E and things that um, I decided to have it properly investigated. And um, that it, I had various scans and things and they found a um, kind of a cyst the size of a grapefruit in one of my ovaries and that kind of triggered the path, the, the long and bumpy road to kind of diagnosis and ongoing treatment really. So I, I had the first a first operation in 2015 to remove um, the endometriosis, which was 
kind of all over my pelvic organs. Um, within a year, it had come back, and I was in. I was um, kind of really struggling with the pain again. Did you have any relief <clears throat> after the first surgery? I would say I. Um, I kind of went into the first surgery quite naively. I thought that okay, I've been diagnosed with this problem. With this problem the surgery is the solution and then that'll be the end of it and that'll be the end of this journey and for a few months I kind of that hope was very much alive in me and then um, when the pain started coming back I kind of had this crash back down to reality and I realized oh my god this isn't something that I can it isn't something that they can just scrape out and I can move on from it's a chronic condition and it's going to be something that I'm going to have to wrestle for the rest of my life um, so that came with kind of a heavy burden on my mental health as well when I realised it's not something I was going to be able to just shake off. Um, so I had the second surgery and with the second surgery came further complications. So I developed um, a chronic pelvic pain um, from nerve damage during the surgery. So that was on top of the endometriosis symptoms that I'd been having. So I couldn't, there was a period where... Um, could be days on end where I couldn't walk properly because the nerve pain in my pelvis was so bad couldn't sit down um if I ran to catch the bus in the morning I would be I would be doubled over in pain for two days um so really really incapacitating pain and that was kind of a layer on top of the endometriosis and something that the doctors couldn't quite figure out why it had happened but something that I've come to realize <clears throat> kind of a few years down the road is that because I'd been having endometriosis symptoms without being aware um, since I was 14 or so, and it, because it took me so long to be diagnosed, it took me 10 years in total, um, the damage that was done by the time it was diagnosed and by the time I'd got around to having these surgeries, um, it just, the risk of complications had grown exponentially without me even realising. So that's something that, uh, there's a lot of what ifs around my situation. If I'd been diagnosed earlier, would I have been able to prevent some of this? Would I have been able to have a better prognosis for the rest of my 30s or whatever? Mm. Um, I think, yeah, that's something I've written about recently. And to be honest, I didn't know much about. I went to a pelvic pain conference in Leeds recently, um, like a geek that I am, but I wanted to learn as much as I could about it and also writing this piece. And the doctor there was saying that there was like a high chance of getting this you know, damaging nerves. Every time a doctor takes a knife to you, like, of course, it's going to cut through nerves. But we don't even have medical consensus yet on where, what nerves women have. So, like, in the cervix, which we routinely scrape out after smear tests and stuff, we don't even know if there's, like, nerves in there. And that just makes me, like, it's just mind-boggling how much we don't know. And it's just, oh, it was just really infuriating. Um, and I think you're talking about the what-ifs. It's like putting the burden back on yourself in a way, isn't it? Because, like... What what do you think that now that we've you've gone through this so far, and you've obviously learned up probably a lot about what's out there and the options? Do you really think that you could have done any more? Like, given that the advances and the treatments we have for endo and other things haven't really come on that much. I think it's really tricky, and I think as you say, it's very much the burden is on the sufferer, and it's hard. You basically have to become an expert patient and the the best advocate for yourself if you're not going to end up with damaging treatment, which is something that I've definitely encountered. <clears throat> um, I think the things that I could have possibly done differently 
I would have I would have sought a second opinion I think when I was first diagnosed I would have tried I would have made sure that I'd read up properly on the nice guidelines of what what treatment pathway I was entitled to um and read up more about like the risks and benefits for the different treatment options be they hormonal surgical or more holistic um but I had no access to any of that information and the only reason that I know these things now is because for the past six years I have been searching for answers and dedicating a lot of my time to tr really trying to help myself and prevent um, prevent further damage being wreaked on my body, basically. So how did you navigate the fact that your opinion is for having to post it's been step up, 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 and it's from the sidelines, like me watching that has been fantastic. But sometimes I do think, how do you and other, other people um, navigate that career success with a chronic health condition tell me because I'm freelance because when I feel crap I go to bed so that's the that's the difference I think I've been super super lucky at HuffPost in that I've got a flexible employer and I get a lot of support from my managers and I've been able to be transparent with them about the health issues that I've encountered and the ongoing problems that I'm dealing with so that I've always got time to go to appointments there's never any questions asked um and I think that a big part of it is having a big part of succeeding, I think, when you have chronic illness is having building your confidence as much as you can, because there have definitely been periods for me where I've just thought because I'm physically less capable than some other people, I'm less I'm somehow less of a person and I have less to offer, whereas I've tried to get my confidence to a point where I think actually I've got a really unique perspective and I've had quite a unique life experience. I'm not even 30 yet. And hopefully that will give um, a perspective to my work that other people might not have. And I'm totally able to contribute, but it has to be uh, in a slightly more flexible way. Um, and luckily my employer is able to give me that. But I would say that definitely Find out what you're entitled to. If you have a chronic illness, you're covered by the Equality Act. Therefore, you, employers are obliged to make certain reasonable adjustments for you at work. Um, really work on building your self-confidence and, um, yeah, and not letting that hold you back. But then also, very important point, listen to your body. Because there have also been, there's also absolutely been periods over my career where I've, completely push myself into burnout and for me I can probably reach burnout quicker than the average person because I'm dealing with so much stuff under the surface. Where did that come from? Is it like a pressure that you put on yourself? Is it just the workload? What led you to those periods? I think I've always been someone who's, who pushes myself very hard and is quite self-critical and I think having the illness on top of that has made me even more doggedly determined to succeed in a way and like and in a way has made me more less likely to listen to my body because I just think I've, I want to prove to myself that I can still do it and I can still achieve what I always wanted to achieve. Um, so there's definitely been some adjustments I've had to make over the years and realise that, okay, if I take a step back for a few months, for example, that's okay. In the long term, I'm still 
heading in an upward trajectory, it might just be a bit more up and down, kind of on that curve towards (laughs) towards success. And my question is, I suppose, in general, have you ever felt that, say you wanted to ask for something like a pay rise, linking it to money here, um, but you felt, well, they're already doing me a favor. They're already like giving me that flexible arrangement that I need. Does that ever go through your mind or affect you when you ask for stuff that you want? Yeah, it definitely does. It definitely does. Um, Yeah, and that's something that I don't necessarily have the answers to because uh, I'd already... I already have to push myself to ask for these things that I know I'm entitled to. And I already feel really grateful for what my employer's doing for me and what previous employers have done for me. So, yeah, there is that that battle. And perhaps perhaps I don't ask for progression in the same way that, that other people who <clears throat> weren't having to be quite so flexible would be asking. Mm. But I think that's also a gender thing. There mm. are other, lots of other factors that... that that contribute to that. I don't yeah, think it's true. necessarily just a <clears throat> a chronic illness thing. Yeah, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. No. That's true. Yeah. Um, and how does it affect you now, like day to day? So I'm currently gearing up for my third operation. Are you? So, <laughs> so um, from December, I'm going to be having to have these menopause injections again. I don't know if I... I think I, you read about them in my uh, BuzzFeed essay. Mm-hmm. But basically, one treatment for endometriosis is they induce the um, an artificial menopause, temporary menopause, uh, through monthly injections, to suppress your estrogen levels, and um, and it just makes the disease less kind of angry, and it helps to kind of turn the volume down on on the growth. So, I'll be doing that for three months, and then. I'll have the surgery and they hope by the time I have the surgery things will have shrunk a little bit and they'll be easier to cut out and hopefully there'll be less complications so yeah I've got the perspective of that at the moment um and that's something that has definitely is kind of is a bit of a weight to carry into the new year because I'm already thinking okay how can I set up my work so that I'm not going to be like this isn't going to really slow me down and um how can I forward plan so that my recovery isn't a massive issue for the rest of the team and I know that my employer will absolutely support me in it um how did it go last time when you had those injections did you say you've had them before yeah yeah I had them just after the second surgery in 2016 and um they were horrible to be honest they were absolutely horrible and it gave me a a, an appreciation and respect for people who go through the menopause that I just absolutely did not have before um I'm not looking forward to them, mm. but I see it as, you know, a necessary evil. Yeah, um, mm. yeah last time I, re- I I had a lot of insomnia, um, like joint pain, all my hair fell out, um, dry skin, hot, hot flushes. The hot flushes were actually the worst because from like one second to the next it goes from naught to 100 and your face is melting off oh my god there's been a lot more awareness of the menopause recently i've noticed but not much solution like have a little personal fan on your desk I was like well that's that's not really gonna solve <laughs> yeah they've got a lot further to go mm. jeez that sounds rough i've read about that actually because eleanor tom did you read eleanor tom's book private parts mm-hmm. and she goes into quite a lot of detail about the pseudo-menopause that she had and she said that I think she found it difficult but she also made the point that 
treatment is not a blanket option. And yet there's like conservative estimate of 176 million women who have this. And yet it's like the default option seems to be surgery or hormones and that doesn't work for everyone. And as you say, you just have to find out what works for yourself. Mm-hmm. So on that note, how much do you estimate you have spent? And I'll, I'll happy to share that with from my point of view as well on like physio, acupuncture, I'm trying to think what I've had, like osteopaths, like traveling to appointments. Like, have you ever thought about all the money we could have saved on doing this and in finding something that works? Yeah, honestly, a horrendous amount that I that doesn't bear thinking about. Mm. Um, like I've had, so one of the big issues I think with um, treatment for endo on the NHS, they're incredible at once. Once you get into a specialized service which I'm under at the moment, Um, there's 52 specialised endometriosis centres in the UK. Once you get into one of those, which you can only access if you have severe endo, um, you have amazing access to care, um, especially surgical care. Really, really amazing access to joint up um, multidisciplinary surgeons. Um, But for anything that is more long-term management, like physio, diet, anything more holistic... Um, the options are just woefully underfunded. So I had physio on the NHS and it was six sessions um, and it was more talking you through like mindfulness, um, pain management techniques. There wasn't anything, it wasn't like hands-on kind of manipulation of the muscles or anything like that. Uh, so it was really nice to be able to have that and to be able to check in with this person for six weeks, but I didn't feel like it actually did anything for me. Mm. And, but whereas the physio... That, so I, I ended up having physio privately, and I did that for two years, 90 quid a session, um, and this person did kind of internal pelvis manipulation, and, and that did give me some benefit for was a this year. this the one that went back to Ireland? Yeah. I swear. Like, have you ever she thought about flying to Ireland and getting her back? She was amazing. She's mm. like the only person, she's like some kind of pelvis whisperer. Because I do find like that in this kind of these circles, it's like you hear about someone and you're like, yep, I'm willing to go and yeah. find them. It's like we're all chasing the same people, you know, because yeah. there's not that many out there that really get it. Mm, absolutely. So that was 90 quid a, 90 quid a session. Well, 90 quid for the first session, then 75 moving forward. Mm. The amount of diet things I've tried, like like really expensive probiotics and vegan diet and um like doing the low FODMAP um miracle cures yeah constant miracle cures it's kind of dangerous isn't it because people can be lured into buying all kinds of stuff and trying all kinds of things and again that's something that's so gendered like you want to buy into the those kind of marketing messages that you can cure yourself from the inside out I desperately wanted to buy into those when I was first diagnosed. So took so many yeah, supplements to, to really drastically change my diet, tried so many different like holistic treatments. And it didn't help one bit. I mean, it probably helped my mental health to to feel that I was doing something proactive, but it didn't cure me because there's no cure for endometriosis. Do you worry like I do about those who don't have, I'm not saying we're flushed with cash, but we can access and pay for physio I just think what the hell do people do if they don't like 90 quid I spent 150 quid a session and I was getting the discount rate and she was you know she was wonderful 
did she fix it? No. No blame there. She was very optimistic. That kept that you know kept me optimistic. I saw her for years. I think sometimes it's just about finding someone who understands and having that almost therapist type ear, that relationship, that support. That does wonders Definitely. as well as how they treat you. So that's that can be worth paying for. Yeah, almost like a placebo. Yeah, mm. exactly. And so yeah, I do think does being physically well. Well, I guess it does. Obvious question: Does it relate to privilege? Yeah, it does, and it, I guess Absolutely. it does in our situation as well. Absolutely, yeah. And but, I think even um, l- people who are less emotionally resilient or uh, struggling more with their mental health—how are they expected to advocate for themselves? Why should they need to advocate for themselves in the way that that you have to if you have a chronic illness? <clears throat> um, yeah, it, the inequality in kind of standard of care and treatment I think is a really really big problem and um I think something within sorry something with endometriosis as well is um they say it affects women of color less than white women but I I really yeah but I really 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 do not believe that that we have hardly any data as it is so i don't know how they're finding that out yeah i i really strongly believe that that can't be true i think that it's about um access to care Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. women in pain being believed it's a huge problem especially for women of color going into doctor surgery and 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 not being believed even though they're in really severe pain not being taken seriously um i definitely had the experience of like a doctor telling me um you know, if I was having painful sex, I should just have a glass of wine and try and relax more. Um, I, when I was first diagnosed with this huge cyst in my ovary that kept rupturing and well, kept semi-rupturing, was tearing away from my ovary wall, I was in A&E every other week with it. And um, the doctor just said, oh, just go on the pill and we'll see how it goes. And there were a lot of occasions like that where I just felt like this isn't uh, if you could understand the level of pain I'm in and the anxiety that this is causing me you wouldn't be su- prescribing such uh, kind of a light-handed no treatment dismissive mm. I was going to say earlier that even if you do have you know billions of millions of pounds people like um Lena Dunham getting her womb taken out um but she still has it uh, Hillary Mantle's had um, plenty of organs taken out. She still has it. So I just think maybe in, in this case, beyond having the money and the access is just, we need to put the money into funding research. Because I don't know what you found, but things that have been, you know, research has been carried out on rats and mice instead of women. and Or like really small sample sizes or really inconsistent data from around the world. It's kind of what you're saying about, you know, women of colour. Like, how do we even know what the real the real picture is? Um, but yeah, it is, it's just, um, it is a frustrating situation. So how do you keep optimistic? Do you, are you optimistic? (laughs) Um, it's a good question. I think, um, or does it go up and down probably? Yeah, it definitely goes up and down. Definitely goes up and down. I think more than being optimistic, I think I vacillate between periods of denial and periods of, kind of doom and gloom mm, that sounds familiar <laughs> I think with me yeah I think when things are going okay I don't necessarily think about it I just I just bury it as far back in my brain as I can possibly bury it and 
try and get on with my life and 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 it's as if nothing's ever happened and then as soon as it comes back it's like oh my god it's back and this is the absolute end of the world so it's it's like totally in between the two at the yeah. moment i'm feeling like um slightly well quite a lot of anticipation for next year and the challenges that the health challenges that's going to bring um and the the possible impact on my fertility as well and um what that means as a woman approaching 30 is it quite mixed research about how it impacts fertility because yeah. I know Eleanor Tom in her book was saying she doesn't want people to assume that that's the case, that it mm. would be threatened. What is your understanding? Yeah, equally, I, I, I don't think we know. I don't okay. think we know enough. But the first thing that you read when you're um, on any information leaflet about uh, endometriosis is that it's known to impact fertility. But And I think... I don't have the stats off the top of my mm. head, but I think the stats are quite stark. I mean, it okay. doesn't look like the prettiest picture. But then, you know, for every story you hear where someone can't have can't have children, someone else has had three and have had no problems, and it doesn't mm. necessarily yeah. correlate with your level of disease. So basically, you don't know until you're in that position. Um, mm. For me, I know that I think the more the more surgeries you've had and the more complicated things get, then. I think inevitably is something you worry about more. But to be honest, that's something I've had I've worried about on and off since I was diagnosed and it's some and it's hard to know if if I didn't have this diagnosis and if I was approaching 30, would I be worrying about it anyway? I don't know. Because because I was diagnosed at I was like 23, I remember like doctors saying, you know, you probably will have issues with your fertility, you shouldn't leave it too late, blah blah blah. And it was the first time I'd even considered whether or not I wanted to have children. And I was too young to be considering it. My my then boyfriend, my now husband, had only been together a year. It was a lot. It was overwhelming to consider to consider what I wanted for my future. And I think in a way, um, that anxiety has like superseded like what my natural thought process would be around that. So now it's very unclear to me, do I have do I want children? Is this something that I've always wanted? Do am I just scared that I won't be able to have children and that I won't have that choice? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. I feel, I relate to that uncertainty, but for very different different reasons. But I think if you don't know what you want, the uncertainty itself is well, yeah. It, as you're saying, it it's affected by the options that you have. But yeah, scary topic. Moving on because I don't like that topic. <laughs> it is a scary topic, especially um, when you think about like women in the workplace as well so well exactly yeah exactly but do you think that you're really good at setting boundaries then because you kind of have to be for your own self-care and how do you balance that with your innate ambition I think that I am good at setting boundaries I think I manage to prioritize my health as much as I can I think probably that that has caused a certain amount of fallout with with friends that haven't understood for example but I think that's that's kind of inevitable. Mm. So it has affected some of your friendships who haven't people who haven't really got it, or if you can't make an event, for example. Yeah, definitely. And I know whenever we like to discuss meeting up, you always say if you're able, yeah. or depending on how you're feeling. And if I message you saying, "Oh, I'm having a bad week" or whatever, mm-hmm. I totally know that you understand. Whereas, 
And I massively appreciate when you say things like that. Whereas there, I have a lot of friends who will be like, oh, this was really important to me. Like, I'm really disappointed. And you want to be like, I'm really disappointed too. I wish I wasn't ill all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I wish I didn't have to make these allowances for myself. But um, I definitely have to be boundaried about not overloading my diary. Yeah. Making sure I've got enough rest days. And that includes, like, work. Like, if I have... Um, a really busy week at work it'll mean that I can't socialise because if I'm socialising as right. well I won't have enough rest time and how does that bring in socialising at work because our, our work can be quite social heavy especially mm. around Christmas how do mm. you deal with that? I think I'm pretty boundaried about that as okay. well I think I would like to socialise more at work but I think yeah I end up being the, the person that slopes off early and showing face and sloping off early is it's a fantastic way of doing it, yeah. ill or not, to be honest. That's true, that's true, yeah. So thank you very much, Lizzie, for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Rachel. Thank you for listening to the first episode of season two. Please rate, review and subscribe to this podcast on all your usual platforms and it will help me to make more of them. You can follow us on Twitter at honest underscore account underscore. We're also on Instagram or you can email us at contact at anhonestaccount.co.uk with your money queries and we will get them answered. Thank you.